And in the context of teams, the key question for us in our consulting work is, why are you a team? We are a team. We're the leadership. No, that's not the question. Why are you a team? And for us, there's only one right answer to that question, which is to work together to accomplish things that we can only accomplish as a team. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to episode 98 of the Love in Action podcast, the show where we explore the intersection of leadership and practical love. Love the verb, love that empowers people to flourish and companies to profit. Glad you could join the movement, which now has spread over 150 countries around the world. Please share this episode with a friend and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Today's guest, I have been following for about 14 years, and I could not be more thrilled that he is here. Anybody that follows leadership and is a student or practitioner of leadership, you're going to remember a few years ago, a wildly popular New York Times business column called Corner Office. Yeah, remember that? It was a simple format, right? Interview style Q&A with global CEOs from some of the best and biggest companies on the planet. Let me tell you, I learned tons about leadership and high-performing work cultures from those CEO conversations. Well, the person who created Corner Office and ran it for nearly nine years is the one and only Adam Bryant. He interviewed 525 executives, including the CEOs of Best Buy, Microsoft, Yahoo, DreamWorks, Ford, I could go on and on. That column became a vast library of knowledge for leaders everywhere. And you will, of course, recall that his first book, The Corner Office, based on his column, quickly became a New York Times bestseller. Well, Adam moved on from the New York Times and after a distinguished career as an editor and a journalist for 30 years, Adam joined Merrick and Company, a senior leadership development and executive mentoring firm as their managing director. Now he still conducts uh, leadership interviews. You're gonna find them on LinkedIn now. He has some amazing interviews with CEOs, board directors, prominent black executives, and chief human resources officers. Adam has a new book, which is the whole reason he is here today. It's called The CEO Test. Master the challenges that make or break all leaders. And it's co-written with Kevin Shearer, the former CEO of biotech giant Amgen. It's a different book than his other two because in The CEO Test, Adam and Kevin have identified these seven key reasons that explain why leaders succeed or fail in their roles. And then they also provide a practical playbook for executives of all levels. Adam Bryan is here. Adam, welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Great to be here. Thanks, Marcel. Pleasure. It's, I, I'm so honored. Be, well, obviously, because it's a little bit nervous, too, I, I have to say, because I'm interviewing the guy that interviews for a living. So 
Hopefully you'll cut me some slack uh, at the end of, of this. Of course, we'll have a great conversation. <laughs> so we now start the show with a sort of get to know you question, but you know, rather than the standard and boring, uh, tell us about your background kind of questions. We're asking you this, are you ready? I'm ready. In under two minutes, what's your story? <laughs> That's a long story, but the two minute version, I guess, put it on <laughs> the frame of leadership. So when I was a kid, I played a lot of sports and I was always interested in the different styles of the coaches. I mean, even when I was watching football as a kid, I'd sort of watch, why are some coaches yellers and some of them aren't? And what effect does that have? Fast forward into my journalism career, I was a business reporter at the New York Times for many years, interviewed a lot of CEOs. And what I realized is that CEOs in the business press are always interviewed the same way, kind of as strategists, right? Like, what's your strategy and how does next quarter look? And what about your competitors? And I just found the more time I spent with them, the more I became intrigued with them as people. They seem really smart, fast brains, good senses of humor, pretty wise. And so that led to the start of Corner Office, which was based on a very simple what if, which is what if I sat down with CEOs and never asked them a single question about their company? And instead, just ask them about leadership lessons they've learned and how they think about culture and teams and hiring, all these kind of timeless universal themes. And it was that simple what if that sort of started this fun adventure. The other guiding principle when I started was I was going to embrace diversity in literally every sense of the word. I was going to interview a lot of female CEOs, a lot of people of color, and I was never going to ask them any gender or race specific questions. Just interview everybody as leaders from all walks of life. And so that was the start of the adventure, and it's brought me into this new chapter and now to this book today. And just, you know, I'm endlessly fascinated by leadership because I think it's tremendously important. I think effective leaders can build companies and lift the lives of people who work there. And what concerns me is there's way too many bad bosses in the world, and, and they create a lot of stress and toxicity for their employees, and, you know, they destroy value. And uh, so if I can make a small contribution, it's to sort of help leaders be better. Yeah. And that's what's so compelling about that column is that you show the, the human side of CEOs, which was so rare, like you said. And I think that's what grabbed me. And I just couldn't, I was waiting for the next one to come out every week. It's, oh, thank uh, you. Wait thank for you. It. So yeah, you really made a difference and an impact on me. So before we get into the CEO test, let's just take a little stroll down memory lane back to corner office. Cause I, I'm so curious about 500 plus CEOs did well, first of all, did you have any idea that that column was going to become so popular and even launch into a best-selling book? Appreciate the question. I didn't. You know, it was just sort of like, I think this is going to work. I, I was in my gut. I kind of knew that it was going to work just because I'd spent a lot of time with CEOs. And, you know, I think there was a little people like, this is kind of different. This is not how we interview CEOs. And I sort of said, just trust me. And I remember so vividly after I did the first interview with a guy named Greg Brenneman, who I'd known for years. And I walked out of the office and I said, this is going to work. And it just became, you know, what was also interesting, Marcel, is like every week I had this opportunity to test out different questions, right? Because part of the goal was to get CEOs off their talking points, right? And over time, not, I didn't go into the interviews with a rigid script about what the questions were. But I generally found over time, I always started the interviews with the same three questions. Like, tell me about when you were a kid, like what were you doing out of class, outside of class? Tell me about your parents or whoever raised you. And then the third question was like, how have those, how have your parents, you know, interviewed your leadership style today? And what I generally found is like, once they answered those questions, if they were open, honest, and candid with me, I sort of felt like I got them. Like everything else, you know, sort of like, okay, I get you, like I get 85% of you. And 
and everything that you do in your career after that is kind of like, you know, it's just sort of completing the trajectory. But I'm always so fascinated about what people, uh, you know, what drives people. And to me, it was interesting just sort of seeing the patterns that emerged. I mean, so many CEOs just had so much adversity in their early lives. So that helped answer the question of like, where does their drive come from? Because these top jobs are stamina jobs as much as anything else, right? Like they're three shift days and weekends and got to have something driving you. And part of it is I think people are running from stuff a little bit, like tough episodes when they were younger. Mm-hmm. So 500 plus, was there one that was your favorite? Is there one that really stuck out for you? It's like asking me to choose among my children, but I will share this observation. You know, what I came to understand is that the interviews were kind of like Rorschach tests, like classic ink blots. And what I came to learn is that if I showed the same single interview to 20 people, I would get 20 different reactions. And in many ways, you know, these simple interviews is kind of like holding up a mirror to a person, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, am I like this person? Is their value system equate with mine? You know, would I like to work for this person? Would I not? You know, there's this one guy in particular, a guy named Bing Gordon, who's a venture capitalist on Silicon Valley. He was talking about how, you know, he thinks about management and leadership and he articulated me better than I could. It was sort of like, you know, separated birth. It's like, dude, that's, you literally (laughs) just put into words what I feel about leading and managing others. And one of the things he said, because I managed teams of reporters for many years, is just, he has a very low tolerance for people who don't want to be really good at their jobs. And he was sort of saying, like, I get kind of grumpy and want to run the other way. And, you know, when I was a manager, I was pretty flexible in accommodating people's different needs and wants and work styles. But the one thing that for me was the break point was like, are you self-motivated and do you want to get better at your job? And if you are those two things, we are going to get along great. And if you're not, it's not going to be fun. Okay. So let's get into your new book, The CEO Test. Now, there are really uh, seven tests throughout the book, but I'm curious, did you also get the content from the book from your interviews with CEOs? That's where we draw a lot of it. So I have a co-author on this book, Kevin Scherer, as you mentioned, former CEO of Amgen. He was one of the first CEOs I interviewed for Corner Office and we kind of stayed in touch. And so, you know, the way I think about it is we brought a metaphorical T to this project in the sense that my interviews represent the kind of breadth of different CEOs' insights and Kevin's experience as a, you know, a CEO, a mentor, a board director, he taught leadership at Harvard for years. He sort of represent the vertical part of the T. So between that, we kind of, we decide early on, you know, like, I think we'd be a pretty good team on this. So that's where we drew our experience from. And, and Kevin plays a kind of player coach role in the book, if you will, and that some of his experiences represent, we use them as kind of core anecdotes, core lessons to bring these themes to life. So, yeah. you know, I figured if I was going to write a book called The CEO Test, and I've never been a CEO myself, it's good to have a, a co-pilot who has been. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So I'll- The chapters then are framed as each chapter is a test and each of those tests is posed as a question. So I want to highlight a few that caught my eye. And test number two is this. Can you make the culture real and matter? Culture is an interesting topic for me because I don't think most HR people or really most leaders really know what it means. I mean, when I was in HR years ago, I had one young manager tell me that He was passing on hiring the number one candidate for a high-level engineer position. Why? Because he wasn't a, quote, culture fit, right? 
What he meant, Adam, was that the job candidate wasn't white, male, and in his 20s. Right. So dispel factor in fiction here. It's the year 2021, right? We're now in the post-George Floyd and post-Me Too era. And on top of that, we're in the middle of a pandemic. If leaders want to build the right culture, where do they start? Yeah. And, you know, I I guess let's start from the ground up, which is I always like to frame things like what's the bad movie version of this and what's the good movie version of of this. And and so to me, the bad movie version of culture, you know, starts with companies saying like, well, I guess we need the values exercise, right? So they put a bunch of words on the wall and then they get laminated wall of cards and posters in the conference room and and nobody knows them and they're, they're never discussed. And if anything, the dangerous part is it makes people cynical because they say, okay, those are our stated values, yet the people who seem to be getting ahead here are behaving in the exact opposite. Yep. And cynicism can be this cancer that can run through organizations. And, and so to me, like that's the bad movie version. And unfortunately, it's all too frequent. You know, I think the good movie version, it's, it has to start from the top. And I think this values exercise, I used to be very interested in the ideas like, is it important that you can remember them all? And, and the sort of, you know, are they ideas or are they specific behaviors? And the longer I've, I've looked at this and Kevin and I had some pretty vigorous debates about it, but I've gotten to the place where it doesn't necessarily matter what your values are. The point is you have to be able to sort of double click on the specific behaviors that go with those. And ideally there should be stories behind them in terms of like why they're important to the leadership team, why they're important to the company's roots. So there's got to be this like storytelling aspect because I really think leaders in many ways, their role is also storyteller in chief, right? That's how we exist as human beings. We need stories. So I think it starts with that. So once you have your values and the kind of behaviors and norms that go with them, then the key thing is they have to be reinforced at literally every opportunity. They have to be a factor in hiring, onboarding, why people get fired, quarterly, annual awards, all hands meetings. They just have to be this sort of constant repetition. And you cannot tolerate the high-performing jerk. Like this is what gets companies in trouble, right? You just have to say like no exceptions. Even though this person is a high performer and they're crushing their division, their behavior just is so at odds with what we say is important. And if you don't let them go, it's like, again, that sort of cynicism creeps in. Now, you raised an important point of like this year that we've had has been so incredibly challenging. And I think one of the challenges for culture and, and, you know, in our interviews with CHROs and CEOs and board directors, this is very much a current challenge for companies that I think a lot about how work is being democratized right now in the sense that, you know, we've moved from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism. And not only do outside stakeholders, but employees in particular are at a point now where I want to, I want to voice, you know, and I want to vote. I want to say and like who we do business with and what our policies are and, you know, what's our stand on Donald Trump or Joe Biden. And, And it is this enormous challenge for leaders and you can't ignore it, but you also can't like go say, well, you know, we like this person, that person, this, if you say this is our position on every single issue and policy and society, ultimately, you're going to alienate half your staff. Yeah. Right. And so this enormous cultural challenge for companies right now. And, you know, the best strategy that I've, I've heard from leaders I've talked to is you, you kind of pick three things and say, you know, like Levi Strauss, they say like gun control and immigration rights, like those are their two things. They're part of the company's history. They're stories they can tell around them. 
And they just say, like, this is us. If you don't like them, if you don't agree with them, then don't work here. Mm. But this is what we stand for. So to me, we're in such a fascinating time, Marcel, in terms of like the evolution of corporations, the role of corporations in society. Yeah, yeah. And social activism and employees walking out of their jobs, you know, like examples at Google and 3000, I think Facebook as well, hundreds of people that don't agree with some policies or some actions from the top, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Test number three is this. Can you build teams that are true teams? What do you consider a true team? Well, again, let's start with the bad movie version. So I, I, think, the, <laughs> I, I think the way many companies operate, it's, there's a sort of default mode. It's like, if you're a leader, it's like, well, I guess I have a leadership team, right? And so you, you assemble a bunch of high-performing people and I think there's this assumption that like, okay, well, now they're going to act like a team, right? Just by calling them a team, they're going to be a team like, no, that's not true. Because the older I get, the more I believe that the phrase dysfunctional family is redundant, right? Yeah. So if all families are dysfunctional, then every team is going to be dysfunctional. And you can't just expect a bunch of people to get together and sort of have each other's back. That's what everybody talks about. I, I want us to have each other's back. You know, that doesn't exist automatically. And I think what happens a lot with leadership team meetings, people get together weekly, every other week, there's not much of an agenda. And they just sort of do the circuit with people going around the table, reporting out to the CEO, and everybody's stealing glances at their phone under the table, right? And they're just sort of like, why are we here? So the good movie version to me, it starts with going back to first principles. And I think one of the key things I'm learning about leadership is like the simple questions are the hardest. And very often the simplest questions like stump people, like what is your strategy, right? And in the context of teams, the key question for us in our consulting work is why are you a team? We are a team. We're the leadership. No, that's not the question. Why are you a team? And for us, there's only one right answer to that question, which is to work together to accomplish things that we can only accomplish as a team right? There are big, hairy issues that every company is dealing with that whether you need the entire team or three or four people, something, but there has to be that sense of like, why are we a team to accomplish only those things that we can accomplish as a team? So to me, that's point one. I think another key thing is you have to set norms of behaviors within the team. Like, yes, they're the broader cultural values. But when I talked to John Donahoe, who's now the CEO at Nike, when he was at ServiceNow, they they did a social contract among the leadership team during an offsite, which is like, what are we going to expect from each other so that we can hold each other accountable? And they actually painted them on the walls in their executive offices for everybody else to see. And I think just kind of like having that agreement of how we're going to roll together, you have to have that sense of shared commitment because without that, everybody's just going to pursue their individual agenda, yeah, right. right? And start, you know, fighting for resources and attention. And I've always made the joke, it's like, there's a reason why HBO ran Game of Thrones on Sunday night, which is to get people ready for work on Monday, right? Because that's how a lot of leadership teams operate. It's like Game of Thrones, like, this is a zero-sum game. If I'm going to win, I have to take you down. And that's the kind of natural default. So the leaders just have to be so intentional about you know stating the, the role of the team, the norms of behavior, and also being clear about what their role is on the team. Because I think that's another question that leaders don't grapple with. It's like, what is my role here? Because we've seen too many leaders who kind of sit back and they go, why is my team so dysfunctional? And they don't look in the mirror 
and realize that they are responsible for setting the tone and the rules. Yeah. Yeah. I love that because for me, it speaks to pushing back against uh, creating silos, which then now, like you said, now you're fighting for internal resources. So rather than collaboration, you have competition. So that's what we're trying to eliminate. So you have a healthy culture in place. Adam, test number five is a tough one. (laughs) And it's this, can you really listen? Now, I definitely want to unpack that for you. And we're going to do that after a quick break. Don't go anywhere. Hey, leaders and managers, Marcel here. You probably already know this if you've been following the show. The question comes up often. What's the purpose of this show? What's the why behind love and action? Well, the simple answer, we need to eliminate suffering in the workplace and help leaders to flourish. Because when we have good leaders in place, the people under their care also flourish. That is really good for business. And by the way, as an extension of the podcast, I launched a leadership development course. It's got a catchy name. Check it out on my website. It's called From Boss to Leader. And in this course, I teach the skills that you often hear on the show. Things like how to communicate more effectively, how to engage your employees to put out their best effort, and how to build a high-performing organization. So check it out. I'm taking calls right now, and I'd love to personally chat with you to see if this course may be a good fit. Reach me on my website, marcelschwantes.com, and click on Virtual Training. Okay, Adam, the test of listening. I mean, really listening is one that many leaders fail. And I'm not just talking about the ability to listen to someone, you know, on the other side of the table or these days, uh, the virtual table on Zoom. Listening is so much broader in scope. So unpack that for us. Sure. And I think it starts with a a simple insight. You've probably heard the expression, Marcel, like careful how funny your jokes become, right? As you move up. And, you know, just this idea that people aren't really honest with the boss. And it's kind of human nature, like with the boss, everybody just wants to bring them good news, right? Two thumbs up, everything's great. Because of that sort of natural instincts, then bad news kind of gets, you know, tamped down and massaged and all the data gets this kind of top spin. And leaders have to be aware of this phenomenon. They have to wake up in the morning and recognize that I am in a bubble, right? Just because I'm I may think I know what's going on in my organization. You know, I walk the halls, everybody smiles at me, you know, everybody seems great, you know, but you have to recognize that you're in a bubble and then you have to take so many active steps to fight your way out of that bubble. And and I think it starts, you know, one-on-one meetings being, you know, truly present and listening for understanding and, and being careful of your body language that you're not sort of throwing off judgments and then in, in setting the tone for listening in, in meetings. But beyond that, it, it, it involves also recognizing this paradox of leadership, which is that as the leader, you have access to more lines of communication within the organization than anybody else. But the paradox is like those lines are, are compromised, right? They're static in the system. And so part recognizing that and saying, okay, 
I now have to build an infrastructure, an ecosystem so that I know that I'm getting honest feedback. And there's a lot of tactics that we discuss in the book that I've heard from other leaders. But this is a lesson that my co-author, Kevin, uh, it was a painful lesson for him that he learned at Amgen because you know, he's the first to admit when he, when he was growing up as a leader, like he was very much like came from the military, he was in the Navy, he was like command and control. You know, he told me that early on, he used to like interrupt people and basically say, look, I know what you're going to tell me. So let's just like save time. So here's the answer, go do it. And it worked for him. And then they had this crisis at Amgen and he realized that he was to blame at the, at the end of the day, he was the, to blame because he wasn't listening. And from that moment on, he became much more intentional about listening and building that infrastructure. And it's not just enough to say, well, let's send out an engagement survey and survey the employees, but he would like set up regular meetings with people on the front lines as sales reps, the people who meet with regulators. In the annual survey of employees, he, would, he asked on the survey an open field question, what do you think of the job that Kevin is doing? And people were pretty unvarnished in their comments. And he would, you know, sit down late at night when they would come in and get an adult beverage to help the, <laughs> the criticism go down. But just sort of, it starts with this realization that it's like, you can't trust the signals you're getting as a leader. And so everything you have to do, I mean, it often strikes me, there's no course on this in business schools. Right. Right. But it is so crucial to yeah. being an effective leader. Yeah. What's coming up for me as I'm listening to you is that I read some research that talks about the higher you go up the hierarchy, the less accountability you receive or you attain, right, as a leader. And, and the reason, obviously, is because <laughs> you're listening to less people the higher you go. Yeah. And so, obviously, those of us that are just top-down command and control, we're not going to want to listen to many different perspectives. And so we know, we know what happened to some of those corporate disasters recently, like Volkswagen and Boeing and others, this lack of, of receiving feedback and listening to various stakeholders. Right. And just to that point, I'll add one thing. You know, in the yeah. book, we, we quote a woman named Nell Minow, who ran a shareholder activist fund in the 1990s. And when I was talking to her, she said, you know, the, the single common thread of all the companies we went after was that the culture was such that Everybody knew that if you don't disagree with the CEO yeah. um, and that if you did, you could get fired. And like, that's very telling, right? Because, you know, CEOs, they develop a plan. They say, I've got all these high performing, you know, high paid people to execute the plan. Like, I don't want to hear bad news, like fix everything. But that's when you get in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So the last test I want to cover is test number seven. And it's fitting for, for this podcast and our theme of love and action. The test is this. Can you master the inner game of leadership? So unpack that for us. What is the inner game and how do we win at it? Sure. I think an initial framing idea that we had for the book is that the first six chapters about what you should do as a leader, right? And what you need to do and, and essentially do that playbook of like how you engage with the organization and teams and et cetera. The last chapter about the inner game tries to answer the question, how do you need to be, not yeah. to do, but how do you need to be as a leader? And it starts with this idea like, look, these jobs are incredibly hard. I mean, the higher you go, the constant like criticism, second guessing, the stamina, like everybody's got a problem with you. Everybody's trying to sell you something that they are just overwhelming. And so then you ask yourself, well, how do people survive in those jobs? And what I've found useful and, you know, inspired by many of my interviews over the years, this insight 
let's go back to the question of like, why is leadership so hard? Right. And why are there so many bad leaders? And, and one of my theories about why there's so many bad leaders is that they sort of take on this challenge of leadership and it's pretty overwhelming. So they say, okay, well, this is my approach, right? I have my way of leading. And then what happens is like the world doesn't accommodate their way. Human beings are super complicated. And so they get frustrated, right? And that's when they start lashing out, like this is not a going according to my plan. And so to us, it's a much more useful framework to think of leadership as a series of paradoxes or balancing acts, contradictions, if you will. And you just go through them because a lot of people, they're always looking for shortcuts. And you know, there's a lot of stuff on the internet is like the most important thing about leadership is fill in the blank, right? And those, you want the answer, but then you just start going through the different aspects of leadership, you know? Like leadership is about humility. Of course it is, right? But it's also you have to be confident as a leader. And so, well, which is it? And the answer is both. And you just start going through the list of like, well, is it about being compassionate? Sure. But it's also about holding people accountable. Leadership is about patience, you know, because, yeah, but it's about urgency as well. So, well, is it this or this? And to me, the answer is always yes, both. And it depends on the context, which one you need to kind of lean into. And and for us, I think the goal for leaders ultimately is to, you know, come across with their staffs as being sort of calm and confident and credible. And to do that, you have to get to that point of being centered. Yeah. That's what I love about that chapter is those paradoxes that you mentioned. In fact, that I wrote down a couple, you've already answered it. And one is be compassionate, but also be demanding. And the other one is be humble, but also be confident. Reminds me of Jim Collins, Good to Great. Right. And it's level five leadership. Wow. Great conversation so far. Before I transition, is there any question that I should have asked but didn't that's really important? I think the challenge for leaders, there's an important insight for me about leadership that I've gotten sort of later in life, that it is an interesting and, and sort of funny field in the sense that you can say anything about leadership and you're going to be right at some level, right? You know, because yeah. you could just start a sentence saying leadership is all about fill in the blank. You can put any word there and people are going to be nodding their heads, right? Right. So I'll throw one, which is really popular, executive presence. Right. And then you say, well, why is that? Well, because at some level, leadership is kind of about life too, right? And so there is this kind of more is more phenomenon in leadership of, it's very easy to start saying, okay, well, what's important for leadership? Well, like there's these 20 things. Well, what about these 20 things? And what we see a lot in companies we work with, there's this kind of more is more, more is better ethos. If you're a rising executive, okay, here are the 50 things you need to work on as a leader. And here's another 50 things that we're going to be assessing you on. And to me, I sort of frame it in the sense of like ROI, right? If I'm going to invest time and energy to get better as a leader, what should I focus on that's going to have the greatest return? And in many ways, that was kind of the core question we were trying to answer. We framed it in the sense of like what makes or breaks all leaders. But ultimately, if you want to get better as a leader, what is going to have the greatest impact? And that's certainly the question we tried to answer in the book. Yeah, yeah. Adam, I like to ask this question because I'm, I'm kind of doing my own research for my manuscript as well. So sure. I want to make the link between the leadership concepts of your book and really your work, having interviewed so many CEOs, to practical love. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole reason we call the show Love in Action, love being a verb that acts to empower people to flourish, right? So 
how does a business leader love well day in and day out? It's a great question. And one of the, one of the reasons I love the question is that it sort of gets to like who we are as human beings, right? You know, yeah. I love the phrase you've probably heard about like lizard brain, right? Like what are the <laughs> things that motivate us at a kind of lizard brain level? And I think love is a word that captures to me, if you ask me what that means, a couple of things come to mind. I'm one of those people who likes to sometimes begin sentences with there's only two kinds of people, right? <laughs> I know there's danger in that, but I, I generally find it can sometimes be a useful exercise. And for me, there's only two kinds of leaders. There's leaders who are self-centered and there are leaders who are selfless. And I know a lot of people talk about servant leadership and which phrase has been around for 50 years, but I've right. heard a lot of leaders say, I am a servant leader and I don't think they were. I think. <laughs> And so to me, it's much more kind of specific about the framework because, you know, if you think of all the bosses you've ever worked for and, you know, people are listening and think about the bosses you've worked for, I think in a split second, you can put everybody into one of those two camps, right? Are they self-centered and they see their own people? It's like, okay, you're just an asset to help me achieve my goals so that I can get promoted. And then there are other people that's like, wow, you're really interested in like developing me and getting the best out of me. So to me, like that's one lizard brain thing. And I, for me, the second one, I just a big believer in the word trust and the importance. Yeah. And to me, that's an aspect of, of love, right? And again, you, Marcel, everybody is listening to the show. Think of all your bosses. It's a very simple question. Like, do you trust your boss? Mm. And what does that mean? But that's a lizard brain reaction, right? Like, if you're not in the room, are they going to be advocating for you? Are they going to throw you under the bus? Are they going to point fingers or are they going to own it? Are they trying to protect you? Are they looking out for you? And so to me, that's what those words mean in the context of leadership. Mm, I love it. And that's a very powerful question. I'm going to hang this question in the air. Do you trust your boss? That says a lot right there. So Adam, we bring it home with three questions. And it's questions to help you kind of get into your heart. And the first one is, what are you deeply grateful for right now? I just feel very lucky about, you know, we've been through such a tough year with the pandemic. And I know a lot of people are hurting and have lost loved ones. I'm just very grateful everybody in sort of my immediate circle is healthy and employed if they want to be. So, uh, so yeah, feeling very lucky these days. Good, good. And personally, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you'd like us to know? Concerned about, you know, our society and the direction, just sort of the polarization and, mm -hmm. you know, people seeing people who are different from them and this kind of sense of otherness rather than we're all in it together. And I think American society is kind of a pendulum that swings back and forth, but I'm a bit worried about how far the pendulum swung. And I'm hoping it can get back to a little bit more of seeing us all as, you know, fellow human beings. Yeah, yeah, we have reached that, that stage where it's almost groupthink. We, we have chosen to stop talking if they don't think like we do. And finally, you get to close us out your way, Adam, with that one thing, that final takeaway you'd like to close us with. I'm going to go back to the point of listening that we talked about earlier, because I just think it's increasingly a lost art in our society, especially with technology and texting and everybody kind of living on their phones. But I, I, I think it's not only a, a superpower for leaders, but I think for all of us, set you apart in your career, you know, if you're ambitious and just in sort of sort of life in general. I mean, one of the questions that I, I sometimes when I talk to students, I'll ask them, I say, who's the best listener you know? 
and you know it's like it might be their brother or friend or something like that. and why is that and then i always close out the session where i say if we ask people that you know like who's the best listener would they say it's you and i think i think it's a good goal to be a really good listener because i think it just makes life richer on so many levels yeah yeah you nailed it all right so i'm going to send some listeners your way right now what is the best way they can connect with you where can they go Sure. LinkedIn, great. Reach out to me. Uh, my website is adambryantbooks.com, all one word. And you can look up the CEO test on Google and lots of people are selling it. Well, it's been fun. I don't feel as nervous anymore as I did in the beginning. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> so I want to thank you so much. It's been truly a pleasure and an honor and we're all better for it. Me too. Thank you. Great conversation, Marcel. If you'd like to join the conversation and comment on this episode, hashtag Love in Action Podcast will get you there. And I'll also be posting this episode on Twitter at Marcel Schwantes and on LinkedIn. You can find me there, Marcel Schwantes, and follow the discussion. And look for my show notes with links to Adam's work and website and other, maybe even some of the CEOs that he mentioned, I will link up as well. And you can find all that on my website. MarcelSchwantes.com. I'm coming right back with your action steps for today's episode. My action step for you is obviously going to be based off one of the tests leaders and CEOs must pass. And honestly, I can't get off the listening bandwagon. It's just too important. You know, in my line of work, having coached and mentored leaders, listening is a make or break skill. I've seen too many leaders fail miserably because of a lack of active listening skills. It's just not something that comes natural to so many of us leaders because, you know, the higher up you go, the less voices you hear, which now becomes a detriment to your effectiveness as a leader. So I'm going to give you your action step by illustrating an example straight out of the CEO test. It comes from Kelly Greer of Ernst & Young. Greer is now EY U.S. Chair and Managing Partner and America's Managing Partner. She leads more than 80,000 people in 31 countries with annual revenue of $17.2 billion. Now, if you're a CEO or aspiring to be one or in any high-level leadership role right now, Here's what Kelly Greer said about passing the test of listening. And I quote, if you haven't created a culture or an environment where people feel free to challenge you as a leader, you are in a very dangerous place because you will have blind spots, she said. So as Kelly Greer moved into her past five leadership roles, she's said to everyone on her team, as well as to her board of directors, and, and I quote, you have a responsibility to help me actively work the blind spot. You've got to bring the truth forward. You've got to speak with candor. We have to have that level of trust, end quote. You know, what's interesting about that statement by Kelly Greer is that she's calling people to accountability to give her input because she wants to listen. She wants to challenge her own assumption and address her blind spots because so often People are afraid of telling the leader what they need to hear because, well, you know, they fear losing their jobs. But Greer is basically saying, I want you to speak up and I'm, I'm making it an expectation 
that you do because I want you to feel heard and I'm ready to listen to you. This is one of the ways that leaders and especially CEOs can break through that bubble and become more curious and engaged in what people have to say. So my special thank you to Adam Bryant for joining us and thank you, Love and Action Nation, for joining the conversation. If you or your company would like to sponsor an episode of the Love and Action podcast, you can reach me on my website, marcelschwantes.com. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Doing so will help more people to find the podcast so we can keep spreading the Love in Action movement. Until next time, don't forget, the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and be convinced.